So, you guys, we are now live on Patreon, a website that allows you to support us as we continue to impact the conversation on race, neighborhood by neighborhood. Yeah, we've got three different tiers of giving. You can give a dollar and be a homie, $5 and be a buddy on the block, or 10 bucks and be our next door neighbor each month. Or you could just do a one-time donation using the Cash App at Your Neighbor's Hood. Yep, and then head to patreon.com slash your neighbor's hood, and Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks. Because to be white in 1963, and I would argue still today, is to have the luxury, the privilege, if you will, of not having to know black and brown truth. You can be oblivious to the reality of people of color and suffer no consequence. Very, very segregated country. Millions of white Americans live in places where they rarely see anyone of a different race. You're listening to Your Neighbor's Hood, a podcast for uncomfortable culture conversations, specifically about race. Do your thing, Christina and Jackie. You gotta love it. Okay, so what's good in your heart? I always okay. start with you. Because I guess First of all, I told you, I told you I was gonna get, tell you the story. Christina yes. just went to my bathroom. I did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And I saw. Oh no! You went to the back to get a glass. Yeah, glass. Because show them your special oh, glass. Yeah. This is Christine. I have a special glass because every time she comes here, and it's the, my Olivia Pope glass. Yes, it is, and it says the struggle is real. Yes, which is very true. The struggle is real. Yes. So this is a very it. me glass. Thank yes. you very much. Shout out to my mom for always leaving glasses. We are here very all the day similar. Time. Your mom and I. So. <laughs> and in our taste, and your daughter. Yeah. So. On the backboard. Yeah, I, when I, I saw a limited amount of flushes for Zahara. And if she goes over three, she has to clean the toilet. Yes. So my daughter does not like to clean, does not like to flush. It's oh. not that she doesn't like to. My son drafted the bathroom. We had a chore draft a while ago, so that was that. Yeah. And so he was like, look, at Sunday meeting, she's not flushing the toilet. And if she's not flushing the toilet, she should have to clean it. That's fair. I said so, too. I was yeah. like, that's fair. So they keep track. On the board, if she doesn't flush, he tells her. That is so And she funny. has to ticket. And if she doesn't flush three times in a week, then she's responsible for the cleanliness of the toilet. That's awesome. How's, how's it going so far? She's had to clean it. <laughs> Sorry. She had to clean it the week before last. But this week, she didn't. She almost did. She had two, like, non-flushes or whatever. So that was a big deal at the That's beginning. really funny. My son was like, Zahara didn't have to clean the toilet i was like "Mm, okay whatever that and that's every week so that'll always be in my what's good (laughs) family meetings are going great that's true i feel like you do talk they're going great something funny because i feel like i do believe i want to go back and get my master's in agile project management and i really need to get it together but i believe that working that in your home is like yeah. It, it, it helps if we're always coming back to the table and seeing what worked, what didn't work every week. Mm-hmm. Then we with can managing kind of adjust. the house? Yeah, with yeah. managing the whole house and responsibilities. The kids so, stay to it well. Oh, yeah, because they plan their week. Yeah. And then it's like I can look at, am I giving them too much to do? Am I putting too much of myself to do? Like every week I can mm-hmm. assess and then I can ask I for support. That. It helps me. Yeah, because I not feel like feel a crazy. lot of right. I feel like a lot of women get stuck doing more and, and then, then do feel, nothing. And then right. Oh, I know. That's me. That's mean. I don't have kids, so like I went to my laundry's as tall as me, or I do. Clayton, I we always say when we have kids, it's gonna be bad. We have to do better because we're we enable each other. So we'll like wait till the house is like super messy, or someone's coming over, uh-huh. and then we'd have to like do a whole thing yeah. over. Like we're we're not like those people that put everything away as we go. Yeah. It's kind of like 
it gets bad. It's like once a week. It gets bad. Then Sunday comes around and we're like, we can't live in this mess anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Do laundry and then dry it and leave it all in the dryer. <laughs> Shut it. And so, but this is the thing in the house is now you get to see when you do stuff like that. Yeah. People can see how it influences other people getting their work done. Yeah. So my oh, son does. has laundry day. Yeah. And when he doesn't do it, when he does it or leaves it in the dryer, then that prevents somebody else yeah. from doing. Right. Same. Like if I do all my clothes and then it's left in the dryer. That just happened. We came home and went to do all our laundry from the trip. And we're like, oh, shit, the laundry. The t- it's full. The dryer is full. So we have to it's bad, but we do it together. So, but we always laugh. I'm like, we're gonna have to get get it together before we. Yeah, it's all right. It's all good. It's yeah. all good. But so then, but what's good in my head? Thanksgiving was pretty cool. Yeah, had lots of family friends over. Um, played board games. So oh, we do game board. nights. Yeah, and. <laughs> I get burnt out on games like I can't they come over and they want to play these games over and over. The same ones. Yeah. But it was a good time. Like they played Clue. Coo. Have like, you played Coo? No. C O U P Coo. Okay. You played Coo. Remember I was like, you'll get it, you'll get it. Was it the spies? Not shifty eye spies, no, but they played that too. Okay. But they played those games and I think everybody had a grand old time. Yeah. That's fun. Grand old time and um I feel, oh, we went hiking. We went trail walking. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I love hiking. Five-mile trail. We went that's this. long. I don't know if I can do that I know, but What do kids do on that? They did all right until, until Zara. <laughs> Everybody packed their own bag and stuff. And then Zara's bag, she packed water crackers, like water table crackers in a water bottle. And she was like, at about mile three, she was like, you know, I'm going to need a dock. I need a dock. We're going to have to dock. You know a dock I can go out and sit on? Because I need a break. <laughs> in the middle of the woods. In the middle of the woods. But it had a lake in between. Oh, gotcha. It was a trail around it. But yeah, so I think once they sat down, which is about mile three and a half, yeah. and four, your good. body's like, oh shit, like let's. I know. Once yeah. you sit, it's almost, you almost have to keep going. Yeah. yeah. So that I mean. That's good. I can't do hikes more than a mile. I get bored. Girl, it was, but they got to go through the woods and stuff. My son got lost. Oh, by himself? Had to go out. Yeah, because we were letting him, as long as he connected back to the trail. Oh, right, yeah. But he didn't, the trail didn't connect back. He was like, I heard him go, Dad? Oh. I was like, oh, he's scary. I'm just going to let him. Well, that would be scary. Yeah, like you know, Yeah, but you got him. Yeah, we got him. Good week. Yeah. Not very, like, life productive, but, but sometimes but that is so good, social though. productive. That is so good. That's I think that's what's good in my head is we just took a lot of time together. You yeah. know what I mean? Just, like, I took naps. I play, We did we played games, which I love because we don't do a lot. So, like, when you – I don't know. I don't see my family often, so yeah. it's just nice to, you know, yeah. like, just catch up with everybody and spend quality time. Yeah, definitely. That's, I, I appreciate that because I feel like the older I get, the more I appreciate my grandma and my mom and my dad and my brother because – I just get so busy in life. I don't also make enough time to call them. Yeah. So I feel like the holidays do make me slow down. And it, that is very hard for me to do. <laughs> I don't do well slowing down. You know, I don't like to. I'm like, I got to be productive. I got to just, and it was kind of like nice to turn my brain off. Yeah. Um, we did get stuck coming home in 12 hours traffic and it's like an eight hour drive home. Oh my so goodness. Like, yeah. Just coming. No snow. Yeah, no snow. snow. We wanted snow. But the locals were like, no, we don't want we snow. Don't. I, I, I and was like, come on, where's my son? Like, don't say that to the locals. Like, just don't. don't. Because they don't That's like, because he's from Texas. Yeah, exactly. He gets so... Because that's... I mean, it snows here a little bit, but not, like... 
he wants to see the snow when he goes, you yeah. know, and, and I'm like, no, the locals don't want it. Like, they they're going to be, it's going to be sick. I will admit my blood is thinner. That's probably not a thing. But when I got home, it was like 26 degrees. And, and you I was were like, freezing. Oh my God. I was like, how did I ever live here? And I needed like all my coats. I could barely find them. I'm like packing all because here you don't really need it right now. You don't need See, I jacket. Yeah, you need light jacket. You don't need like heavy coat. And I went. Mm-hmm. I'm a runner. I went running in it, and I like couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god, I'm out of shape. But it was just a cold. It's just you cold. Went running. I did go. Running. Fine. I know. I did. Yeah, I ran like three or four times. I love you. Yeah, because commitment. Look at her. Oh, yeah. Well, if I'm gonna eat. I, I'm not. I, I'm not saying you have to run to eat, but I'm just saying like I love to eat on Thanksgiving more than I normally would, and um, so I, I run offsets a little bit. Favorite dish? Favorite mac and cheese. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm lactose intolerant, so this is really funny. So that's my fa- yeah. So that's my favorite dish, and everyone in my family. It makes me really sick, and everyone in my family. So or the dish is getting passed around. Bubba intercepts it before it comes to me and hides it. Swear to God. Because they're like, they don't want to smell your face. Yes! No, seriously, I wasn't going to say it, but they're like, because for years, I've been, it makes me so sick, and I'll eat it. Mm-hmm. I'll just eat it, because I have no control over i got to connect you with my friend, Harmony, who really? makes, she makes vegan mac and cheese. Oh, I need some. Because that is my favorite food. Yeah. And it's hard for me to give up. I know. Well, it's hard to give up. It's my favorite food. It is. And my family hides it from me. <laughs> so you didn't get any? No. I'm sorry. I know, thanks. But my stomach didn't hurt, so. Because <laughs> they didn't have me blowing up our bathroom this yeah, holiday. No, seriously. It's terrible. And it's like, my family knows because since I was little, I've always been like that. Yeah. And I'm a glutton for punishment, oh, so. Here comes the male person. Oh. I'll see the male person. Uh, what's your favorite dish? That one? This year, oh, I love mac and cheese, but the person who was supposed to bring mac and cheese didn't bring the mac and cheese. So we That's all serious. were pissed off. Yeah. Yes. Um... I don't know. I didn't eat much. I'm going to be quite honest. Really? Not eat much. My friend made some amazing chocolate cake. Oh, that sounds so good. Oh, it was so good. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. It was so good that it was gone, and I meant to steal some before you I... You had to save at least a piece. Yeah, for me. Yeah. For me, like, you put didn't it in have any? I did have a piece, okay. but I, like, meant to cut a chunk right. and, like, put so it in... you can have it later. That's my favorite. I love second and third dinner. <laughs> but I sure did. I used that turkey to rip up some ramen, girl. You, I did. Do I you t- still have the turkey? I have a little bit left. Yeah. I made the turkey. I made oh, the turkey. Oh, you did? Sure. Okay. Yeah, the kids were so excited. Anyway. It's a good what's good in the hood. So the kids, yeah. speaking of, we had this amazing podcast. Oh, yeah. With a what? sociologist. Oh, yeah. Miss the Curly Professor. Curly Professor Brittany Friedman. Yes. I hope I said your name right. Please. Yes. We were so honored to have her. I think she reached out. She does very similar work. Uh, study, but she's on the. We're professional, so she's more. She's got her doctorate. Um, yeah, smart woman. The woman, the woman is very smart. Yeah, she's very smart. The woman is very smart and cool. Yeah, yeah, and so easy to talk to and fun. So what do we talk about? Gosh, so just so you guys know, there's two episodes because her work is so in depth that we were like, we got. We had to do it. it. We had to do it twice. Yeah, we had like after the first time we sat down with her, we were like. This is an incomplete yeah, conversation. We, have to, we have to do this again. Yeah. So we did. So the first part, well, the name of the episode is Colonized Minds. Right. What did you come came up with? The yeah. Um, teaching racism. I won. I'll look. I'll look. I'll look. I'll look. You can tell that we are crazy busy ladies, right? Then yep. 
always have things on our minds. It was colonized mind teaching racism. Something about teaching racism. Teaching of racism over time. Yes. So we talked, yeah, so that was a great conversation because she really talked about, well, we started young. Yeah. We started talking about how we can teach, how rage, we aren't born racist or we aren't born yeah, yeah, yeah. hate. Uh, what that looks like for me. Yeah, she goes from, she talks about everything from what it looked like back in the early days to what it looks like in the prison system. Vaguely kind of touched on that. Can't remember what it was. I can't remember. I'll edit this out. But um, she talked about what it meant to uh, her family. Yeah. Yeah. What is her and why she even got into sociology? Yeah, and that's because that always drives me. She studies very specific things, so I was always interested what brought people there, what Mm -hmm. what their backstory was that brought her. Her what's her descent? I forget. She's she's a straight up African American with some Creole That's right. in there. Um, but she, what I love about Brittany is that one, she sounds like a normal person. Yeah. But she's extremely academic. Yep. She's on. She's actually an associate professor at Rutgers. Yeah. Starting right. in January. Yeah. Which is a beautiful thing. I think you'll hear her talk about that in part two. Right. Um, but she's like done the work yeah and when you meet people that do the work and can explain it to you and give you an understanding in a a, way yeah in like a normal human way like i it wasn't too academic which isn't bad but it's just you it was easy to have a conversation with i think that's a skill yeah it is as a professor i think that make it relatable Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and she's super cool so she's on instagram if you want to ask her some questions at the curly professor yeah and just tune in like this was awesome yeah um i learned a lot I, you ask a lot of great questions, Thank too. Thank you. I think just diving deeper into... I, I think because that's all I have coming from it is questions. You yeah. Know? I mean, you could do your own research, but I think a lot of this, there's just so much to unpack. Yeah. You know, there's so much to unpack with racism, what causes it, where it comes from, how our minds are colonized, mm-hmm. you know, how we're all put into a system to think about race, and that's what she touches on. And then she also brings it home into real-life examples. Yeah, real-life examples. I feel like I understand history just a little bit better. Yeah. Thank you, Brittany. Always learning more history, so. Yeah. So tune in. Yeah. Get you some with yeah. the curly professor. Yeah. Part one. Part one. And then so don't worry if you're a little overwhelmed, there's a part two. Yeah. Take your time with the episode. Yeah, and take this episode in do- doses. Yeah. I think it's Yeah, I mean I always feel like that. If it's how long is it? Probably about this an one's hour. about an hour. Yeah, so I do that. I break them up into 30 minute chunks. Like if I know I have a 30 minute drive, I listen. Listen in and Yeah, break it up. Yeah, I'll learn so much. Absolutely. So here we go. Yeah, go ahead. So, who the heck are you? Oh my gosh, who am I? So, you know, the other day someone asked me that and I said, well, I have a PhD in obvious, but I was just kidding. <laughs> um, so, I guess, you know, I would say I am a, I'm a, I try to be a professor. I try to profess sociology is essentially, I guess, what that means um, by day. Uh, by night, I'm a mom. Uh, I'm a wife. I still try to be a hot wife, but you know, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, we're, we're trying. We're trying. Trying. Yeah, trying. I think I'm succeeding on the motherhood part, but the others, I'm trying. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, most of the time, I spend my day writing, 
researching and reading. So I'm also essentially a bookworm. <laughs> that's what I'm doing most of the time. But I do love to read, so that's fun. Hence all the books behind me. Uh, <laughs> that's your your office yeah. for now. Yeah. So yes. tell, what are you into right now? Tell us where you are and why you are where you are. Yeah. So uh, I am finishing up my PhD at Northwestern. Congratulations. Um, thank you. So I already turned in the draft. So it's like, okay, it's real. It's happening. Um, and then in January, I'll be an assistant professor of sociology and criminal justice at Rutgers okay. in New Jersey. So um, yeah, right now I'm just like, my head is in my dissertation. I Basically, my dissertation is about the historical persecution of black political activists behind bars in California. Um, and then I also look at how this persecution translated on the ground level. So that essentially means how did black activists experience um, abuse in their day-to-day -day interactions with other prisoners and with correctional officers what did this mean for them? How did this further politicize them? It actually it radicalized many of them, as you would think, because they are already involved in uh, politics, social movements, essentially being targeted for that. And they have the skills and resources to organize on their own behalf. And that's what happens. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And it, it's, it's a lot of drama behind bars. <laughs> That's a fun way to put it. Yeah. You're like, when I hear drama, I'm thinking, oh, so it's like the real housewives? <laughs> no, my drama is like doing interviews with people who've served, you know, I mean, most of their lives in prison, like 30, 40 years, just telling me in detail about gladiator fights that correctional officers will set up, about battles between various organizations like the Aryan Brotherhood, the Mexican Mafia. I mean, it's very deep, deep stuff. This <laughs> first year, like validating Orange is the New Black. I know. I just binge watched that whole season. Just <laughs> the little stuff you're saying. I'm like, oh, oh, geez. No, it's it's real, and it's it's actually. I mean, because that's made for TV, right? And if you some of the stuff that I have in the book, I mean, it's. I don't even think you could put that on TV. It would have to be like rated MA because of how um, graphic some of these experiences that people have lived through. And then when they are coming out on the outside, there's, as, you, as we know, there's no support systems. People believe, well, you went to prison, so you should, you know, deal with it. And then essentially, we don't realize that a huge proportion of our society has been institutionalized and has to find a way to re-enter, essentially on their own, and just start over. Wow. Let's tell that story. Yeah. Let's tell that story, um, because again, this is Professor mm -hmm. <laughs> that we're talking to. Um, a lot of the folks that listen either have parents or grandparents that, were, that grew up, and we're gonna say the 40s, 50s area, era. So let's talk about what does it mean to be a black person in the 40s and 50s based off of your research? So based off of what I've, based off my research, what it means is that, as you know, um, you're still property. <laughs> 
in so many words. You're still property of the state, and you are still, um, I like this, this metaphor that I heard recently. Um, at this time, black people are sort of the embodiment, we're the embodiment of nothingness. Like we're just sort of like an empty space in comparison to whiteness. And like we have to exist, if you will, because we, um, whiteness needs a counter in order to validate its superiority. But essentially, we mean nothing. And in this time period, it's very evident in the uh, various abuses that you see on the outside um, in society. And we can think of, um, you know, the civil rights movement. We're thinking of, you know, people being sicked on with dogs, the bombing um, in Alabama. But then behind bars, what I see is that this is magnified on a much greater level because prisons are designed to be coercive. They're designed to control they're designed to um, dehumanize and that's already African Americans at this time and arguably still today are not completely viewed as full human beings <laughs> um, deserving of it. and so what you see is that correctional officers are bringing with them what I would call their pre-existing racist ideals but then behind bars it's almost like the Stanford prison experiment times two it's like having that power and that control to be able to enforce your will makes the conditions for African Americans that much worse than in comparison to other prisoners who are experiencing abuse because at this time you do see white prisoners are experiencing abuse as are Latin uh, prisoners as are prisoners of Asian descent but it's not on the same level as African-Americans. In California, at this time, African-Americans are actually kept separate from everyone else, almost to prove a point that like you are on the bottom. And there's various lawsuits against California in the 40s, 50s, and 60s where prisoners are saying this goes against, well, eventually, when you have uh, Brown versus Board of Education against segregation, they're using that to argue that, well, you can't have segregation in prisons. But what the courts are saying is actually prisons have the right to, to protect the institutional welfare, and they can do that by any means necessary. And if they think that we need to segregate you to do that, then they have the right to do that. Well, so how does one even get to prison? <laughs> How do we even get to prison? Oh my goodness. Well, so are you talking about this time period that I'm looking at? Um, in this early era, what you really see is, I would say, a, a backlash to the Great Migration. So, you know, following World War One, uh, you see a huge, well actually, I mean, even following the Civil War, you see a huge migration of African Americans from the South trying to escape essentially racial terror that's happening during Reconstruction. Um, and you see it again after World War I, and you see it again after World War II. And I would say a lot of it, I think it's characteristic of a backlash to this, this increased black presence. Um, some sociologists like to call it racial threat, and it's essentially where minorities, when our, our uh, population size increases, whites take notice and they become fearful of their own political or economic power. And I think that's what happens during this era. And the, the theory also argues, which I don't think it's a theory, I think it's, it's a theory but based on facts, is that um, what ends up happening is that the state begins to rely even more heavily on coercive apparatuses like the criminal justice system to control this increasing population. Wow. It's nasty stuff. I see your face. <laughs> it's nasty. It is 
because for me, especially as a white person, this is so weird to wrap your head around. You know what I mean? Because we get white privilege allows us to just not have to think about it. You know what I mean? So for me, this is such a world that to you guys, this is not crazy. But to me, I'm like, oh, my God. You know what I mean? Like, this is, I know what white supremacy is, and I get it, and it's in play. You know what I mean? I think I'm constantly learning and peeling back the layers of what it is, but hearing what you're saying, I mean, that's so crazy to me. It's a world I can't even wrap my head around. So, And, and, and two, listen to what I'm saying, and what I would say is, like, part of that, like, part of, I guess, the homework in the layperson's right. our minds is getting closer to things like Cointel Pro. But that meant being a black person that, because you said it's about social, it's just like political, and, um, economic strength and power, about how the FBI and the police forces were weaponized in a sense, not even in a sense, but really weaponized to keep, to put black skin in prison. Exactly. I mean, there's there is a really great quote. I should have pulled it up. It's um, it's a former official in the Nixon administration, and he did an interview, and it's in a mainstream media magazine, where he basically admitted that the entire war on drugs was like a fabrication. It was like a political tool because they wanted to find a way to incarcerate hippies, and it's basically like. African Americans and the black left. And that's because they saw it because during that era, right before the war on drugs, you have the Black Panthers, you have various, um, and also just left wing groups, um, the student liber student movements against Vietnam, and what the state needs what the state ended up doing and admitting to doing later on, as we know, is needing to find a way to vilify them and criminalize them. And the best way you do that is you appeal to people's fears. Mm -hmm. um, so I think when people hear, even when you hear things in the media about like, oh, how dangerous this is. And we can, we can talk about marijuana, for instance. This is what they did with the hippies. They, they said, you know, marijuana is it's the gateway drug. It's going to make you go crazy. You're going to lose your mind and all this. Like, look at those dangerous hippies. And people are like, yeah, lock them up. And, you know, and like, what is it like 40 years later? We're all like, everyone's joking about medicinal marijuana. And it's like, see, it's really all in the construction. Like you just, when you are hearing and listening to things that are really trying to play upon your fears, you just got to sit back and think like, is that logical? Like, is somebody trying to like manipulate me? Is this like a political game or is like, is this actually reality? Wow. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like it all kind of comes to what we're what we're trying to what your research is trying to bring a full picture of. Yeah. And kind of what we're trying to get people to see is that these all these things are uniquely tied together, right? Right. Um and I'll say we don't study this history. Like this history is not taught in your everyday textbook in American history. You know what I mean? Yeah. Adult, you're having to learn or even look for this yourself and a lot of white people don't and I think that's how these these systems stay in place because once you find out about it you're angry but the average white person doesn't know about it because we don't talk about it you know what I mean yeah no I know and I think also people think well why does history matter you know they're like well why do I even why do I care about what happened to people in prison in the 60s and 70s right and it's like well you should care because there's so many parallels to the contemporary because you think about how in the contemporary various media sources are will 
and even certain government factions vilify contemporary movements like Black Lives Matter, right? Um, and it's the, and in my opinion, it's the exact same thing that I see that is what happened during that era. Um, and it's because of this basic underlying premise that when African Americans, when we try to speak up for ourselves and try to like assert that yes, we do matter, yes, we are human beings, there's usually a counter to that where it's like, well, well, doesn't everyone's lives matter? Like I'm sure you guys know like, well, everyone's lives matter. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's our point. Everybody's lives matter. Hello. I'll tell you what you do. I do not envy because even in listening to some of the things that um, interviews that you had and reading some of your work is a little sickening. Like it makes you feel a little nauseous, but I think for people that are listening, it's like you have some negative stereotypes that have been embedded into you based off of these things. So when we say, well, black people don't read, well, you know what? They were like targeting, like literally the FBI was targeting black bookstores to tear them down. Like, oh, they, you know, we need a spokesperson, but literally the, the FBI was targeting anybody that stood up and said, hey, this is not right. So when we kind of look like what, and when we look at the other side, and it's like, I find that what I see from certain factions of white people is, is that like black people don't care, mm-hmm. that we want to be in hoods, that we all of these things, all of these stereotypes that you have are rooted in a truth that was created by a system. Yeah. Right. And now we take this system that created all these truths about criminalizing black skin and then we walk these whole bunch of black folks to to prison which is where your work comes in. Mm-hmm. So now that we got all these black folks, you know, it's criminal to be black, we're going to create this narrative, and now we put them in prison. Well, how does the government transition from taking what they consider radical black folks, I think it's the, the BMI black, um, what am I saying, BMI, no, the same black extremists, and putting them in the prison system for either trying to do good for their community um, what ways do you start to see over time that you know, back then and now that the prison system even morphed what was going on in society present day and then into something even bigger, which is your, your area of study? Do you mean sort of like how the prison system uh, changed the movement or like what are the steps that the government takes when they criminalize Black, what a black. You agree? The, the steps that they take to criminalize them and what that looks like? Well, the first thing that you have to do is like if you if you want to construct a threat, you the first thing you have to start off with is essentially uh, what you would call in sociology a social problem. And there's, <laughs> so we'll, I'll break it down. So there's like, there's different types of social problems, right? There's some that are inherent. And that could be something like a hurricane. We all agree that like factually hurricanes are very scary and 
as you all know recently, right? They're very scary, very dangerous, and cause a lot of casualties. They can. And then on the other hand, you have you have social problems that are constructed. And by that, I mean something like climate change. It's something where people on one hand are arguing, well, it's a fact. Like climate change is like a hurricane. It's a fact. And you have people on the other end, they're like, no, it's a political tool. It is not real. Right. So you have some problems that you can debate and others you can't, is all I'm saying. And when you have a problem that's debatable, that's what the state uses when it targets specific groups. Is it 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 picks it, it develops a story where you could debate it, but they, they will promote so much compelling evidence that to the average person it's like it's not even debatable. Like, yeah, blacks are criminals. Like look at all these mugshots, they're all black people. Look at all these people I see, you know, on the news committing crimes. Like, it's just going about creating an issue and using the evidence at your will to make it so that your, your point of view becomes naturalized. Almost like African-Americans being criminals is as synonymous as saying a hurricane is dangerous. That's the goal. And is that start? When did that start? Has that been around since the 1800s? Since, I mean, what <laughs> I mean, I think you can, I, being someone who is deeply embedded in historical context, I think you can take it all the way back to the colonial era. That's where it started because it starts when you, I mean, if you even look at some of the writings when Europeans are first coming into contact with various African nations, um, there's a very famous um, European writer, and I should have written down his name. I would have been able to think of it, but it's just coming to me now, and I can find it for you later. He basically wrote in his journal, he's like, he said that these nations are so advanced. They are, they are so drawn together with their strong culture, with their strong norms and society that we are not going to be able to attack them head on. Because uh, at this time, they were like, we don't, I mean, there's no way we can just defeat them. So what we're going to have to do is make them think that everything that is European is better than what they have, in so many words. And he, he's writing this very plainly to Parliament, I believe it was in, in England, saying that we need to essentially colonize their minds. And if we can colonize their minds by promoting whiteness as, you know, the ideal, then we will be able to divide and conquer them. Wow. And, and when people hear that, they're like, that is not real. And I'm like, I am telling you 100%, I'm not lying. Like, this is Yeah, absolutely. And that's my reaction. I believe you, of course. But it's just like such a crazy truth bomb to hear. What do you think keeps that in place, though? You know what I mean? That mindset. Because, you know, like, why? Can you speak to that? Like, why all of it? Why are we still dealing with this in 2018? We're still dealing with this. Because in my my opinion, it like I said, it, it because it traces back to colonialism. It's like what almost six hundred years of baggage. Where you know we we learn in sociology that people are socialized, and that essentially means in your day to day interactions, starting from birth, you learn through interaction with other people, your parents, what is right, right. We can all say, like, you know, I learned, as people say, I learned to be racist from my, my family. That's like what I learned. And so the, the, the struggle with it is that if you, if that's what socialization means, imagine, you know, that socialization over time for generations over the course of 500, 600 years. And so what you have to do is you really have to, you have to use um, almost a, a revolutionary way of approaching it, which means just, in my opinion, trying to reform people's minds is very difficult. You have to 
just present them like these are like the concrete facts. That's the only way I've ever been able to get through to someone who, in my opinion, is like very racist. I just like will sit down and like point out factual things. Like I will say, for instance, African-Americans and whites use, use, may use drugs at about the same rates. However, African-Americans go to prison at this much higher rate. And they'll say, well, yeah, but doesn't that indicate that they're using drugs more? And I'll say, no see this research right here, I can show you that shows that we are actually policed more. So if we have more police in our communities, then we will go to jail more. That doesn't mean that on a, like a factual basis that we're actually doing it more. And then they'll be like, oh, that makes sense. So if there's more cops in my neighborhood, I probably would get stopped more if I, you know, smoking a blunt. It's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And they're like, okay. So I just feel like you have to approach it head on with facts. Otherwise, people are like, it's still debatable to them, right? They're like, we can debate this. And the point that I want to make to that, so then there's the racist, and then there's just people, and I get this through the work that I do, and it's kind of sound awful, but like, black, what things are equal. You heard me say this all the time. I get pushback all the time. Like, why are you even doing this? Like, we had a black president. You know, that's really ignorant. You know what I mean? But you still have to walk people to how this, you know what I mean? I'm constantly having to walk people to how this matters. And so I guess that I answered my own question. You helped me answer it <laughs> as to why it's still happening. Because I think there's two. You have racists and then you have people that just think that the status is equal. Okay, we're or good fine. to go. We're yeah. good to go. Yeah. We're in a great place. Because I've been told that quite literally. Yeah. yeah, the colorblind myth is yeah. so, yes, it's so dangerous. Sarah. You know, people will say we're post-racial. Look um, at your face. Look at her face. She's yeah. like, oh, God. Right. I, oh, my gosh. I have to fix my face, too. When I, I like, when people say things like that, I mean, it's, I'm it, like. And it's disgusting. And it's <laughs> white person doing the work. You constantly come across this. Constantly. I would say I'm, from, you know, from Ohio. And so we live very different lives. And so you, so what we see in the media is we're like, oh, we saw that president. We saw, you know, so my family is like a lot of people, not just my family, but like, what's what's the issue? What's the problem? And I'm like, where do I start? <laughs> See, the thing is, is I've even, I, so my, my husband, I think I told you all, like, he's, he's technically white, but he's like, <laughs> I don't even know if I should say it. Australian Jewish and what? He's Puerto Rican, uh, Jewish, um, and Italian. And so he, but he identifies, he identifies as white, but uh, like, like white Latino. That's yeah. what he identifies as. Um, and so he and I will have these conversations because he will say to me, like, you know, can you just explain it to me, like, from based on your experience? Because I may or may not get it, you know, and I, I'll say, okay, well, has there ever been a time where you fell out of place because you were the only white person in the room? And, like, you know, people may or may not have said things to you that could have been considered as as rude and he has he's been like the butt of you know like the white boy joke or whatever and I was like well how did that make you feel and he said well you know I did feel a little self-conscious and I felt you know uncomfortable and I was it made me sad and I said well imagine if that was your day today like every day you are always the only person in the room every day you are always the potentially the butt of the joke or you are feeling insecure about your place and like how would that affect your your psyche how would that affect your self-worth how would that affect how you interact and he was like, I see what you mean. I guess I, I don't know what it would, I think I'd be sad if that was my everyday. And I said, well, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's how you just have to, I told him, I was like, you just have to imagine like, what if, 
you know, what if it was, what if it was me in that, in that context? And it's not to say that he's like, he's not saying that he's uncomfortable in a group of people of color. He's just saying that there's been times where he has been, like I said, you know, the butt of the joke or whatever. And I told him, I was like, but that was like once for you, right? Once or twice. That didn't happen every time. I'm always the only woman of color usually. (laughs) And I've been the butt of so many jokes. I can't even tell you. It's not once or twice. Speaking of um, your family, um, I feel like you are, you're, and I love that you say I have to stick to facts because you're a show me state girl. <laughs> yes. yes. She's like, show me the facts. Show me the facts. Yes, I am from Missouri and I am from Missouri. from Missouri. And so how did all of this play into like your upbringing or how did it play into getting into theology? Like you, yeah. there had to be a journey right. to walking towards coming into this study, which we're going to get deep into what you study. Um, but how did that, how did that happen for yeah. you, Missouri girl? Oh my gosh. So, you know what? I love my family, right? And you know, there's a but. (laughs) But I would say my family is very representative of so of sort of the uh, the divide you see um, between African Americans that are middle class and African Americans that are lower or working class, right? So I noticed this at a very young age. I would say that myself and my siblings grew up very middle, arguably upper middle class, and so did some of my other cousins. And I realized the correlation was that all of our parents had went to college. All of our parents uh, went to HBCUs together, and they all graduated and got jobs, and this was in the, um, the 70s. So they were part of that first wave, that uh, like the big wave, because there, you know, African Americans had been going to college, but at much lower rates, right? So I realized this, and I also realized, okay, so what's happening with my cousins that their parents didn't go to college? Their parents stayed in the communities where my parents grew up. Many of them are, are still struggling to this day, struggling a lot. A lot of my cousins have been to prison. A lot of my cousins are have or may or may not still be involved in gangs. Just like just a lot of various uh, social issues that I noticed as early as like elementary school when we go visit. I just noticed because it's very, very uh, distinct. Right. I grew up in like a mostly white neighborhood going to, to white schools where I was like my sister and I were like the only black people here. And then when we go visit our families, it's very different. It's like an entirely like, you know, black community, but it's it's a usually a lower income black community or working class. And there's just so many things that we noticed um, that were different. And that's why I became interested in sociology is I wanted to understand why is there this huge divide and how come the majority of my family is in this predicament and then a very small subset of us are in a completely different arena right it's it's just it i understand why now why you know i'm i have i have my phd very soon versus uh, one of my cousins is just finished serving a life sentence right so yeah it's personal to me yeah um, which you 100 and i think it speaks to how education in people's lives can make can completely change their trajectory. You know what I mean? Like how, like we, we forget that, we miss that, and we sometimes don't understand the deprivation of a quality of education of a certain group of people and how that changes the course of their family life mm-hmm. and, and why some folks are still, like you said, stuck. <laughs> and that was a system that was created 
going back to what well, we said in the 1800s, but then moving forward. Yeah. Is that I think we left off in the 40s and the 50s. So what was going on then in the world of our incarceration of black people or just yeah. sociologically for black people? Well, the thing is, is that, so, you know, I'm sh- if you're familiar with the, the idea of the chain gang, at least in the U.S., I mean, that traces back all the way, it traces back to slavery and, and, and uh, indentured servants who, you know, got into trouble, for instance, who... Oh, uh, with the chain Yeah, gang. I don't know what it is. That's the sound of the man working on the chain. chain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In it? That's talk about the chain gang. What that mean? <laughs> it's, it's, okay. Well, I love Sam Oh, what it is? Yeah. What is the chain gang? So the chain gang, so in... So going back to slavery, you could, you would see slaves chained up by their ankles working in the fields. And then slaves who got into trouble would be lined up in chains as well, uh, even uh, chains around their neck, around their, their wrists uh, and waist, um, and, and just working in those conditions. And you also see that continue on in the prison system. Uh, and so when, and what most people don't realize is, as we talk about mass incarceration is occurring in the late 70s. So most people don't realize that as early as 1960, African Americans in the U.S. were five times more likely to be in prison in 1960. So it's, it's, it goes all the way back to that time period when African Americans are first in, in droves standing up for their rights. Wow. And 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 so so yeah, I guess it's just you see a lot of that's why I love uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow because there before her book there were sociologists and historians and political scientists said a lot of the same things that she said in the book. But the thing that makes her book stand out is that she just did a really great job of bringing together the connection between slavery and the modern prison boom. Right. And she does a great job of doing that through narratives of people's lives. Right. Where uh, one I think she starts off the book where one of the people she interviewed, you know, his great, great, great grandfather was a slave. After that, a co- only a couple generations later, like that grandfather's in prison. He's in prison. And it's just sort of a continuation. I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but I'm getting in my feelings about it. Yeah, no, no, because I think it's important to, get to tell that story to People, when we have this conversation, they don't necessarily sometimes connect to facts. And it's mm-hmm. like, you have to take a look at the generate, and we call them generational curses, but it's not a curse when somebody made it, like created yeah. a situation. You know what I mean? The, the generational effect that, that racism and white supremacy has had on everybody's lives. So even talking about the man who his great, great, great grandfather was a slave and then there's prison and then there's more prison and then there's maybe a break in more prison and then going to the other side and saying, well, there's this small investment. Then there's going to the military and getting, you know, the VA loan. And then there's this house that gets passed on to you. Then you can be given a car and then you can, you know what I mean? That, it, that has really created this disparity between where we are and where we want to be and where we could actually go culturally between, we're talking now blacks and whites, but between whites and non-whites, you know? Like yes. that's important to, to understand it all goes together. Yeah. And the prison system is an important key to keeping, to furthering that disparity. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's become, I would say, almost the main institution of division 
in American society. And even speaking to facts, as you were saying earlier, I, I heard my whole life growing up from people in my community. As I said, I grew up, my neighborhood was mostly white. And people would say, you know, I just don't understand. Like, you guys are like the good black people, but I don't understand why the rest of, you know, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> They're like, you guys are the good blacks, basically. Like, I, we don't understand why the rest of you all can't just like get it together. And I was like a little kid, right? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to figure. I'm trying to figure it out. Cause you even hear it in your own community. I've heard even some of my cousins be like, "Oh, I can't stand going to see like that side of our family." And it's sad, right? Cause you internalize it. You internalize this uh, individualism that it's our. It's 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 all down to individual responsibility, and it has nothing to do with social conditions at all. That's what we internalize. But I mean, it, thinking about factually, like even looking at our generation in terms of differences, we could think about our grandparents, right? Many of our grandparents are baby boomers. During that era, many African Americans served in World War II, but when we came back, we didn't benefit from all the benefits that World War II veterans, white World War II veterans, uh, received. And that is arguably one of the reasons why the baby boomer generation was able to accumulate so much wealth, right? So much more wealth than we will ever in our generation. We didn't have access to the education subsidies. We didn't get any of the first rate loans. We didn't get any of the homes that they built for veterans. Uh, we were just sent right back to the hood. And actually, many of us were, um, if you're in the South, you, you could, you were, many people were lynched for wearing their their uniform when they came back from World War II because it was seen, yes, it was it was seen as a sign of like you getting too big for your britches, like you're still an inward, so don't be wearing that uniform, like it means. But then they serve. I'm so. I mean, I, I mean, I forgive my ignorance. It's just so hard to wrap your head around this stuff because I don't, I don't, I can't, I don't even know how to. I can't. <laughs> like, it's just okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there was a case that came out in the New York Times recently about how um, record. The Justice Department is trying to suppress the release of these records from a 1946 lynching of two African-American couples. One of the men was a veteran, and it's argued, the NAACP is arguing that's one of the reasons that they were lynched, is because he was like, he returned, and he was wearing his uniform, and he was like, seen as a threat. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's it's something that, like you said, and like we're talking about, like you have to present people with facts because when someone hears that, if they still don't even want to entertain the reality that it's not all boiling down to your individual effort, right, as to where you are in life, yeah. if people don't want to talk about facts, it's sometimes just really hard for me to make time for them. Right. No, absolutely. I would have been, like you yeah. talk a lot about emotional fatigue about having to be have a very good spirit of discernment of what conversations are healthy and what conversations are not. Yeah, like when is someone truly trying to learn versus, mm -hmm. you know, there's a difference between asking ignorant questions and then just trying and not having an open mind. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that's where a lot of, you know, I know a lot of white people just come from ignorance, you know, and there's been a lot of marketing of African Americans as bad. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if you know, in the inner city, it's just, I was raised, it was dangerous to go downtown. And that was code. That was code. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I didn't know that until I got to be 28, 29 years old, you know? Um, but those were systems in place that were marketing black mm -hmm. people that way. And if black people are being, you know, disproportionately incarcerated more, then that just feeds back into the narrative. Right. You know, the yeah. black people yeah, are that's, dangerous. That's mm -hmm. what, do you see what I'm trying yeah. to say? That's what she was saying about the police and going. Right. It's, I was. That's when when I hear that, it makes me laugh because I'm like, well, t for a lot of black people, we think that white people are dangerous because if we go to your neighborhood, we might get shot. <laughs> 
yeah or pulled over exactly that's why it's like it's like oh so my neighborhood's dangerous okay well i don't want to get stopped at first in your neighborhood so right and then it keeps us apart mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and when you when you kind of think about I'm, I'm thinking about i'm sorry but i like have the image of somebody in their uniform hanging like it is kind of uh, it's upsetting and in just it's frustrating i guess as a a black person, for me, just for me, period, it's frustrating because it's it's almost like any nothing there there's nothing that we could do. Right. There's nothing when you've got Edgar Hoover saying that if there's a black Messiah, you know, some people hear Messiah and they think a savior, right? Somebody who's coming. But his idea of a black Messiah was anybody who was telling black folks you can do and be better, and here's how we do it. That even that was criminal. That that idea. So for me, I want to go back to some of my cousins who are still with the shit. That's pretty much what they say. And like pull them up out of it. But you can't. Right? You, you can't because just as um, white folks were conditioned one way, they are so deep into conditioning right. that there's no, there's no way out. Because even like you were saying in neighborhoods, I grew up where even the drug dealers were like, don't mess with her because she's going so even like they, that was them telling themselves that they were less than and that allowing me to be saved from the bullshit was saving a community that I know I can't, one person can't save, you can't save, you know, and, and that sucks. And that, that too is like the black Messiah, like I'm not a Messiah for the people where I came from, but I want to help. But even that is could be considered something, even now with the black identity extremists, if you, Black Lives Matter stuff, I, could still be considered dangerous and be put on a watch list wow. for ri- trying to rise up in a sense. Wow. It's nothing futz, right? It's true. No, but what I want to get your perspective on as a sociologist, where does like where does racism racism start? Is it from parents? Is it from youth? And then what keeps it in place? You know, what keeps these systems in place? Like I'm trying to it's so hard to understand. Almost more action items to to get the, the system I mean, away. Yeah. Well, there's so there's really great research um, in sociology and psychology that talks about how it starts as early as with babies. So research shows that that small children usually like when I say small, I'm talking about like my daughter's age, like eight months, nine months. They they do tend to prefer people who look like their parents, but it's. So it could, that could be technically racialized, but it's not, if you know what I mean. It's more like, you know, oh, that, that person kind of favors my mom, so they might smile at certain people and not smile at other people. But by the time they get to be um, two, they actually do start noticing racial difference because at that age, they start noticing that people get treated, certain people are treated one way and certain people are treated another. And so even at the earliest age of two, children notice through interactions, and that can be with um, with parents, with other parents, uh, in public, they could, they could observe how their parents are treated, they could observe how other children are being treated by like a preschool teacher. They learn as early as age two that, you know, people of a certain skin tone are treated and people of this other skin tone are treated less than so I need to try to be like these other people because that's what's considered good as children little children they want to be perceived as good they want 
approval from adults. They want approval from their peers. And it's very disheartening because that research just affirms what many of us as African-Americans already know in our heart, because you can think about your own childhood and remember being a small child wanting approval and at times feeling that you were less than, but you didn't really know why, right? Like you didn't know why you felt like that. Um, and so in my opinion, I, I, I think it starts at those young ages and it starts from being um, in social situations and day-to-day social situations and it can be at the grocery store you notice that you know the cashier might treat your mom a certain way or your mom might be getting followed around the store and, and little kids notice these things and these researchers have proved that they notice them um, and, and then I think the same study showed that even uh, as early as kindergarten children will prefer uh, to have friends of certain races based off of their own interactions and experiences, yes. And it, it tends to be that children will prefer to have white friends. Um, and yeah, so it, it's, it starts very young and, and I knew this, but I- It almost sounds like we need to more diverse cultures and growing up more diverse would be healthy for, healthier for everyone, right, for society? Exactly. Follow-up studies, they showed concrete ways that we can make it better. So follow-up studies showed that if you introduce children into diverse situations where they're around a multitude of adults of different backgrounds and children, especially being around children of other backgrounds, it significantly lowered the likelihood that they would have a strong preference for whiteness as a child. And so I think that that's why people think diversity is just a sham. And it's like, no, this is proving that this is like one way that you can intervene early. <laughs> you can try to change the mindset really young. So it means you go into each other's neighborhoods, right? Your neighborhood. Sorry, I you should. <laughs> Your neighborhood. <laughs> really, this, that gets to the heart of the podcast right. of what we're trying to say and do. Yeah. yeah. That makes so, so much sense. So now we have... A sociologist telling, telling right. you, go get your kid, erase the hate play dates, yep. do some dinner, do some something, yeah. be very intentional about what you do and who you do in the village around your um, little citizens. Exactly. That's exactly what the, the authors of the study about children that were two and three, they ended their study by saying that they are proving that it's ne- Children are never too young to talk about race. They're never too young to talk about these types of issues. And, um, and if you don't talk about them, that's when you're actually letting society make up your child's mind right. um, and so versus I, you. So I read a, I'm reading White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, and she said, and every white family has gone through this where we grew up predominantly white, and then you were introduced to a black person at a young age, and there's a woman who was in the grocery store, and her son just says, oh, look, there's someone that's darker or a black person, and the mom goes, shh, don't say that. Don't mm-hmm. acknowledge the race because as if it's inherently bad to be black. And I was like, oh my God, all of us have done that because we're teaching the children from a very young age that it's wrong to see race. And it's not. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's not. And um, and so she was saying that the, the better way to do that is just say, yep, yeah, there's people of all different colors. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that person is black, you are white. And But a lot of the times what we do is tell our children, no, 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 don't point out that they're black. No, 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 that's bad. And then it's reinforcing the idea that being a person of color is wrong or bad or that we shouldn't acknowledge or talk about race. Exactly. I've had that 
experience and I mean so many of my friends have and so you're absolutely right it starts young yeah yeah it's it's with I think in my personal opinion I think what they're showing is that with children of color you have to make sure that they see themselves in everything around them. that can be from their toys that can be from their books their cartoons you have to make sure they see themselves so that they know that you know no, you you matter too and you are like just because everything um, on the outside may seem as though you're an other you're not. and I think that means for for young white children that parents have to be very deliberate about also making sure that they see other colors other cultures in their day-to-day as well that means that all of your you know nursery rhyme books can't just be stereotypically European looking children right that you're not making sure that their their movies and their cartoons or dolls like you just you each basically white parents need to diversify <laughs> to parents of color need to like blacken and brown it that's <laughs> what i'm saying <laughs> so if you're saying what you're saying is if i have a parenting portfolio we want white people to diversify their portfolio yeah. and we want black folks to get more of yourself inside of your portfolio that's yes. how it's be deliberate for everybody moving yeah. forward is what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Do you know how hard it is to find a black dentist? Okay, I hear you said that before. Because <laughs> usually they're old white men, right? <laughs> Listen, I've been trying to find a black dentist for about a year now. A year. I found my black orthodontist for my son. She's amazing. UConn graduate, like, did all this homework on her. But I cannot find a black dentist to save <laughs> my life. <laughs> I'm serious, but that's part of my being intentional sure. of like making sure that there are professional folks in my kids' lives that, yeah. yeah. And that's why I love this conversation with you because you're really bringing the facts to the things that we yeah. talk about, you know what I mean? Because we try to say this stuff all the time, but you're really bringing it home as to why diversity truly matters and how diversity plays a role in creating equity for everyone. Mm-hmm. For, people yeah. exactly and a prison and and in a system yes like in a, in a whole day gum what do you call whole day gum institution and i would hope my hope is i don't have children yet but as i move forward and hopefully do someday is that we that they will start further along than i did because i'm 30 and now doing this work like i don't know a lot of it and i know that most of my friends and family don't either and it's not by choice that we didn't want to it's just that that's white privilege yeah yeah and and, and i think uh, i think too just one of the things, and I think what you all are doing is so great for that reason, because you it's, it's never too late to start. I know that what love that we're just talking about how we should try to intervene with children, but if we think that it's it's too late, then we'll never do anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. Yes. It's never too late um, to start to creating I, what I would consider better human beings, um, what I would say creating better communities, and really viewing everyone as being a part of our community. We're all, we're all one community. And it's hard to do that if we think that it's too late. Yes, I love that. Because I think so often people like to give up on older generations. We have a woman that was in her 60s and has just come to our events and listened to the podcast and said, you know, I feel like I was in a dark room and now I'm walking into the light. You know, and it's bright as hell. <laughs> but it's great, though, because she will have grandchildren. You know what I mean? And she will, you know, even my grandmother is starting to come to converse, into this conversation slowly, but truly. And like, I had no idea. She just didn't know because she grew up in rural Pennsylvania and then moved to Cleveland, Ohio. So never interacted with people of color and didn't even know that she should seek out diverse experiences. Not because she's a bad person. She just, 
it wasn't in her worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's even with as like being an African American, I feel like we have to also look at ourselves, our, our own community, and our own conditioning about what I would say is like the belief that you know white is right. right. <laughs> you know what I mean? We have to, we have to we have to be really focused on that because I can look at my own family and I've heard people in my family say, oh my gosh, like, you know, because my hair texture is curly, right? It's like, it's not as tightly wound. So they'll say, oh, you know, I love your hair. You have such good hair. Mm. I think, you know, oh, I can't wear my natural. I have to get it. And I'm like, no, like this is, this is, it just makes me so sad, you know? And it's, it's something that I just need to also tell myself it's never too late to explain something to someone and to try to make a difference because I, in those situations, sometimes I just shut down and I, even with, with my own family, because yeah. I just think, yeah. you know, it but I, so, I, I, I'm just going to say, I can't, I can't give up as well. Yeah. It is so funny because when you look at, I think I saw a post recently on somebody's Twitter that was like, um, maybe it was yours, the whole um, black pride equals um, Hispanic pride equals um, t- no Islamic pride equals terrorists and it's almost like like outwardly as a black person you have this yeah I'm black and I'm proud but then when you walk into your home it's almost like oh, I'm trying to assimilate you know what I mean like and when I look you know what I mean that it's a it's kind of a weird dichotomy of like I'm so proud I'm so proud but I don't want to do too much black or I don't want to be too I don't know if that makes any sense Oh no, I know exactly what you mean. That's I, I think about that too. Even with my own like uh, body issues, that I I feel proud to say that I'm like overcoming. I can really I really feel strongly that I've overcome a lot of that. But like growing up, I always felt so self conscious because I, you know, was in like a mostly white neighborhood and like oh you're fat or you have too much curve or you have this and that and like growing up and and you know coming to learning more about history and sociology I first came upon like the story of Sarah Bartman are you, you all familiar with her right mm-hmm. yeah so she you know she essentially uh, I believe she was a slave uh, that was taken throughout Europe um, like a, a circus animal if you will in the 1800s because she had a, a large behind and wide hips and they they people would come and look at her and like gawk and say oh look at her body and how deformed and and I realized that like that's sort of the origins of my disgust for my natural curve it comes from that that being ingrained that like having that type of body is like it's gross or it's it's sexual or you know what I mean and I just think when I think of the ways that my mind is colonized, I, it really hits home for me because I also I have daughters too, and I, when I'm thinking about beauty and what's um, considered uh, acceptable and what's considered appropriate, it has a lot to do with that. Wow! Yeah, I didn't even think about that. And we've all been colonized then, like our mindset, white people, and I mean, all, you know, and that's so it's like a ton of unlearning. But some, but this is why I love doing this podcast too, because white people don't even know they got stuff to unlearn. <laughs> it's it's that is true that is very true because I hear I even hear you hear white people say oh I, my hair I don't want to I hate my my hair it's wavy and it gets all frizzy and I'm like no you're beautiful like curls are they're, they're gorgeous you don't have to straighten it you know it's the same it's the same right. it's the thing it manifests in a different way and I think that the level of pain it causes is different but it it definitely 
manifests across the board. I mean, it's interesting, even just looking back at high school, for me, our, we wanted to be anorexically thin. Like, that was the ideal, was just, I'm petite, and I was always like, I want to be 100 pounds, you know, and I still have to fight that, because larger, for whatever reason, is not good. curvy, or whatever you want to call Until it. Until my anaconda don't want none unless you got buns, hun. <laughs> Exactly. Right, you know, like I don't know. For, no, but you're right. For whatever it's worth, unfortunately, it did take European American people to make our body acceptable mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. It took <laughs> to say, oh, but big butts are good. A J Lo too, because it kind of J Lo too. That it was like, oh, she got a big butt. Look at, you know, like it took someone that was not aspirational. Yeah, yeah, that did not that did not have that dark skin, even though she was of color. She's still in black. You know, exactly. There's pr there's plenty of Afro Latinas who've had you know a much bigger or the same behind in the public eye. Nobody cared until it was a light skinned Puerto Rican. Woman. So it's that that that. Oh, we're going into a whole nother thing. Like, but still, yes. No, but it it's, also it's, back to it's the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. The darker is always better and it's worse. And then it plays into it plays into everything. Our looks, the prison, all of it. Yeah, when you're thinking about uh, um, racism and how it manifests, it whether it's through criminal justice, whether it's through our beauty ideals, uh, with all our family interactions, it, it it all comes back to the construction that we were talking about. So it's all it's all related. It's it's really yeah. You hear people say you need to free your mind. That's what they were saying. You know, with the follow colors. Don't be so yes. Free your mind. Who sings that? Did Whitney sing that? It's in my head. I'm like free your mind. She sings to me all the time. Girl, I'm googling it right now. I don't care because I'm singing these songs. You knew Sir Mix lot. You knew him. Free of mind. Watch. Gosh, she's gonna play. I was bogusly wrong. It was in vogue. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Free your mind. I love that. Free your mind. Okay. Can that, that should be the cue in. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Great. I've done this before. Yes, you know. Okay, so yeah, we're going to cue that in. Listen to this right here. Told you it was a song. I told you. I believe you. I've never heard it. <laughs> but I think, I mean, if, like I said, I feel like we've taken a lot from yeah. you. But I, I mean, Christine, we're talking about this, is that we feel like you're like a two-part series. Yeah, if you don't mind. <laughs> no, seriously. It's so flattering. I don't, I don't mind. I love you guys. You're so much fun, though. <laughs> I, I'll come back to the neighborhood. Okay, yeah, because great. we really do want to dive into... Um, what it means in the actual system, because I think what we impact right. today is just the effects of criminalizing skin, yes. right? And what that means yes. and what we can do and things like that. But then it's once we've criminalized the skin, all this is happening. Happen. What does it look behind bars? Yes. Which is like all that you do, right? And then once the, once we're, we want to dive into that deep and what yes. that lived experience behind bars for people of color looks yeah. like but we can't really dive into that until we take our listeners because we talked about this before a lot of our listeners are white women um <laughs> you know but, but they're the average white woman doesn't know this stuff uh as deep as obviously as you do so we kind of wanted to do one part and then another. yeah put the pieces together yeah will yeah. you do your puzzle 
I will be your puss. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> We're going to be friends. Look, I'm going to ask you, how is um, Miss Shelby? Miss Shelby? Wait. Miss Shelby. Tell everybody. Oh, I thought you were talking about Shelby. You know, the story of Shelby is actually, it's, it's funny because I feel like she's living her best life right now, but it's sad, too. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what happened to Shelby is a couple of years ago, my husband, he doesn't like to listen to me. He's very stubborn and I've accepted that part of him. But he had Shelby on our porch and I said, you know, Shelby needs to be like in something with a cover because she will escape. She's an escape artist. There's many times where I have found Shelby, as you may have seen on my Instagram, free in the house. Or, or like in a corner hiding because our dog would have cornered her and like and he was he's basically kind of he's kind of a snitch right because he was like barking like she said she's good and Shelby's like f you you told on me so basically my husband's like no she's good she's good and I was like okay. so Shelby is on the porch I it, you know they are out there for like thirty minutes I, I look outside the window. She's not in the box. I see that she's just not in the box. So I run down the stairs, run outside, and I was like, where is Shelby? And like, I was like, where is Shelby? Because we had Shelby since she was a little baby, and I was like, that's my turtle. Where is she? And then he was like, what are you talking about? Where is Shelby? And he looked in the box, and he was like, she was right here. And then he starts canvassing the porch. And we, at this time, we live right next to a forest preserve. So then I was like, I looked into the forest, and I said, Shelby's gone. Yeah. Shelby literally is gone. She escaped. She was like, sayonara, I finally did it, y'all. And I'm out. I've been crying. She said, these bitches, I'm out. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's funny, but it's, it's sad because we did raise her from, like, a, she was, like, this big when we got her in New York City. So, like, but she was, like, she had been trying to escape for, like, a year. <laughs> she finally, she made and she made it, and she didn't just make it out of the house. She made it into the forest, <laughs> and it rained that day. Living her best life. Living my best life. <laughs> Ain't got time with you. I'm living my best life. I'm telling you. That's Shelby. Hey, like, Shelby, if you're out there, um, glad to see that you were persistent. Yes, as we do want people to be persistent about creating change. You saw what you wanted and you went out there and got it. Good. Wow. Way to bring that home. You that went out there good. and you got it. You were intentional. Put me on the porch. I'm cool. <laughs> it was funny that she was like, she was so smart and sneaky about it too. She was, he said that when he put her in the box, she just sat in one corner and she sat like that for a good like 15 minutes. I said, yeah, because she was just letting you think that she was just sitting there mm -hmm. chilling. As soon as you turned your back, started grilling, she was like, I got to go, right? It's my chance. <laughs> so, and the funny thing is my dog was barking, and I think he, he probably was snitching. He was snitching, but this time he was, he was behind the glass door. And so Shelby was probably like, <laughs> and so forth. Finger in the air, peace. Oh don't care. God. So when we finish up, that was yeah. a, that is a beautiful story. I'm glad. So we, you know, you this is hard that. stuff, you know. So then we don't want to leave on a on a all oh, gloom and gloom. But we do what's called so what now what, right? And with so what now what, it's like okay, so what we talked about this stuff. Now what? So if you could lead the way, or you want one of us to lead the way with the so what now what, what, what are you feeling? Um. Well, I think 
today what we've covered the so what i think we've we've sort of unpacked the fact that change is possible and i think that that's a a prolific so what you know we've unpacked the the lie that um it's too late and that you actually can make a difference right now no matter what a person's age is um you can start you can make the obviously the biggest impact if you start with children but as you that's what i would have thought until we talked because what you just proved is that that woman who said she's coming into the light i mean that's a a foundational transformation right i mean and i would have never thought something like that and so i think that that's the so what it's not too late right and that's a now what as well that is a now what yeah Yeah. so what it's not too late now what get to it yeah my so what now what is so what like we had this conversation and it's important to keep having it and then now what is the diversity piece because I know that we have mothers that listen right so I love that's like very actionable to me is like making sure your children aren't just around all white children or aren't just partaking in all white books and white media um, because diversity and she gave us the facts and you know the figures of diversity really matters in creating a more equitable society going forward yeah. and making sure that my kids are in your kids generation have it but do better exactly so i guess my so what is so what you know i have my feelings about things right because it's really personal in a sense for me and that those things are valid just based off of a lot of things that we've talked about and then so what history is real but now what it really for me always goes back to the one things that we can do right that whole journey of doing changing the stuff about me so that that is the world quote in a sense so my now what is i'm going to continue looking for a black dentist but i'm but i'm also going to challenge other people no matter what your cultural background is is to what is your one thing that you can do to now what one thing can you do in your world that changes that world yeah with regards to race relations and um, things like that. So whether that's picking up a book of um, Big Hair Don't Care, or you know what I mean? I'm like just throwing some, 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 you even Snow Day. Snow Day's got a black character in it too. I love Snow Day. And it's a classic. Yes. Yeah, I never thought about that. But um, even picking up and doing the little things that they, they all matter. But one thing is where you start. Nothing is too small. Yes. Yes, I love that. And history, y'all, and history. Yes. Thanks. Curly Processor said she brought them. She brought us. So give us all of your handles. If people are like, oh my God, this girl's amazing. If they're like us, like, where can they find you? Um, And then can you recommend a book? Oh, yeah. Do a a record. So tell us all your handles and your current book recommendation. So you can find me on Twitter, Instagram. I'm new to Twitter. I just joined in September, but I'm really finding that Twitter is kind of like the. Um, academic like LinkedIn like academics don't care about LinkedIn but we like we're all over Twitter engaged sharing each other's research debating I was like I should have gone here sooner so yeah you can find me on Twitter I've been on Instagram for a while um, both at curly professor so um, and I could tell you a little about a little bit about what I'm reading right now yes please yes so right now I'm really into this book called the pursuit of happiness um, and it's basically about 
African-American women who are disillusioned with their romantic opportunities in the U.S., and um, which is just like so fascinating, right? Um, and how they actually engage in what's considered emotional transnationalism. And it's really that you're like, you're forming these emotional ties to what could be in other parts of the world. And so they, they travel to different areas in the African diaspora looking for love. Wow, so that sounds really there. good. Hold Emotional on. transnationalism. Girl, let me just tell you, I'm about to go to Audible right now. Yeah, that sounds really good. <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation. Yes. Because I could understand that. Yeah. Like romanticizing di the diaspora to prime love. What's the diaspora? I'm familiar with that word. What'd you say? I to know what diaspora is. Yeah, what is the, it? The whole collective. Oh, yes, diaspora is, sorry, I was like looking up, there's like some really good reviews of the book, but the diaspora is, is basically just like making it plain. It's like where in the world there's, there's black people as a result of us either migrating or being forced, usually forcibly removed and put somewhere. Okay, thank you. That we're all a part of it. It doesn't matter if you're I feel like it's that word that says all y'all Negroes are connected. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like seriously. Yeah. Like it really is like from the music to the like we're all part of the diaspora. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. I'm always learning. Yeah. Girl. Well thank you, Brittany. You were awesome. Pre yes. usual. We have listen, these guys are bomb. Me too. Nope. I love you guys. I wish that we lived in the same area. I know. Me too. Listen, one day, one yeah. day when you're all alone, I will something, something just thinking of you. She serenades me like this all the, the time. The way you look today. Did you want to be a singer? I don't know. I think it was a snort. I do it now, and my husband's like, you took it from Jackie. I'm like, I think, you know how you just pick up things from people that you're around a lot? She's an empath. Yeah, I am. Well, thank you, ma'am. I'll reach out. Okay, cool. Thank you guys so much. Make it a great day, as Jackie said. Yes, make it a great day. It will be a great day. This has been fun. <laughs> Thanks, girl. Take care. Bye. Bye.